two events in the life of today's guest. He just turned 93, and he just published his latest book. Thomas Sowell on Uncommon Knowledge Now. Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. After growing up in Harlem, Thomas Sowell served in the United States Marine Corps, then received an undergraduate degree from Harvard, a master's degree from Columbia, a doctorate from the University of Chicago. After teaching at universities that included Cornell, Brandeis, and UCLA, Dr. Sowell became a fellow at the Hoover Institution in 1977. Thomas Sowell is the author of some 40 books, including his newest volume, Social Justice Fallacies. And this past spring, he turned 93. Tom, welcome back to Uncommon Knowledge. Oh, good being here. You know, I can't help thinking, reading your background, if only you'd been a little bit more industrious, <laughs> you might have been able to make a name for yourself. Social justice. Dr. Martin Luther King in 1963, quote, I have a dream. My poor little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. And you write, Dr. King's message was equal opportunity for individuals, regardless of race. In the years that followed, the goal changed to equal outcomes for groups what now rose to dominance was the social justice agenda. If the social justice, those backing the social justice agenda could have everything they wanted, what would the country look like? Uh, we'd be killing each other. <laughs> All right. Can you give me intermediate steps? <laughs> In other words, what is the social justice agenda? What do they want? They, they, they want everybody to have, have, have equal, equal outcomes or as close as they can get to it. Uh, unfortunately, uh, you, you, don't have, uh, you don't have the preconditions for that. Uh, even in the same family, I, one of the examples I, I use in the book is uh, uh, among, uh, among five child families. Right. Uh, the national merit finalist is the firstborn just over half the time. That is, more often than the other four siblings combined. Right. The, the fifthborn is 6% of the time. And so there was even where, where you have almost ideal conditions. They're born to the same parents, raised under the same roof, and they are not the same. Because all kinds of things matter, including birth order. The, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Let's, you, you take on various fallacies here. Let's take on a couple of them. The equal chances fallacy. Even in a society, I'm quoting you, social justice fallacies, even in a society with equal opportunity, people from different backgrounds do not necessarily even want to do the same things. In American sports, blacks are very overrepresented in professional basketball, whites in professional tennis, and Hispanics in Major League Baseball. Why is that telling? Because the, the, the implicit assumption, and sometimes explicit assumption, 
is that in a world where everything was fair, where everyone was treated fairly, you would have uh, things would be representative of the population, the demographics as a whole, and all these various activities. Right. Imagine a, a black kid born in Harlem, and he's born with uh, a, a body identical to that of uh, Rudolph Nureyev, the great uh, ba uh, uh, ballet dancer. There's, there's, there's the odds are a thousand to one that he'll become a ballet dancer, much less another Rudolf Nureyev. I mean, he would be uh, looked at strangely by all his uh, uh, friends in the neighborhood What's if he even wanted to do that. What you mean? But he, he, chances are he wouldn't even think about it. Right, right, right. So you mean to say that when you tried out for the Brooklyn Dodgers, <laughs> you tried out for the pitching position in the Brooklyn Dodgers, and they didn't hire you. You were not being discriminated against. <laughs> Actually, I was trying out off of first base, and the real, real reason I messed up was that my position was center field. But in order to be a good center fielder, I need hours and hours of uh, of practice. And and it was it was a very bad spring. I got very little practice, and so I figured I at least I I I won't go out and make make an idiot of myself in center field. So I made an idiot of myself at first base. <laughs> right. Um, Chess pieces fallacy. The chess pieces fallacy. Explain yeah. that one. Well, Adam Smith uh, uh, had a very low opinion of abstract theorists who imagine that they can uh, control a, a whole society uh, with the ease with which one puts, uh, puts chess pieces where you want them on, 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 a, on a chessboard. And so this, there's this notion of this inert mass of people down there, and then the wonderfully brilliant people at the top who ought to be telling them what to do. And there's no thought that, uh, first of all, those at the top don't even know us, the people's uh, uh, individual conditions who are very different from themselves. And when they try to help, they make things, they can make things disastrous. You discuss a theory of justice. This is under knowledge balance. Yes. A theory of justice, which is in certain circles, certain circles, every university in the country, the mm. philosophy department, political science, you'll get it in sociology. This is the big book oh, yeah. on social justice written by John Rawls, philosopher at Harvard. Qu I'm quoting you, Tom. Rawls refers to things that society should arrange. You quote him, arrange, that's yeah. the word he uses. And then Tom Sowell says, interior decorators arrange, governments compel. It is not a subtle distinction. Explain that. Well, if you're going to try to get some kind of result, you have to specify through what kinds of mechanism you expect to get that result. And different mechanisms, whether it's the government, the market, uh, the Red Cross, whatever, they have their own individual things that they're good at and not so good at. And so you can't get the, the social justice result that you want unless you have the kind of uh, institution that's likely to produce that result. Politics is not that kind of institution. And yet they all implicitly rely on government. Yes. Redistribution of wealth, uh, adjusting, uh, uh, using legal regimes to adjust the proportions of various groups that get certain jobs. They all rely on government. And what's distinctive about government is it's the one institution that can send you to jail. Yes. All right. And that's, the point is that's dangerous. We shouldn't want more government, more hands in the power of the politicians. Yeah, one, of the, one, of, the real, the one, one of the real problems is that you have people making decisions for which they pay no price when they're wrong, no matter how high a price other people pay. 
And right now, the, 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 the homicide rates are beyond anything that uh, were, were around, let's say, uh, prior to 1960. Uh, and I mentioned 1960 in this case uh, because that's when the Supreme Court remade the criminal law. Uh, they discovered rights in the Constitution that no one had noticed for over a century. Uh, and, and they were impervious to evidence. So contrast your neighborhood in Harlem mm. when you were an eight and nine and ten year old boy with what we see in neighborhoods in Chicago today. Oh say. my gosh. People are astonished when I tell them I grew up in Harlem. I can't remember ever hearing a gunshot. And then I, I, I've, I've checked with my relatives who grew up in similar neighborhoods in Washington and down in North Carolina. They never heard a gunshot when they were growing up. Uh, you know, uh, I remember going back to Harlem some years ago uh, to do some research at a high school. And uh, I looked out the window and there was this park there near the high school. And I mentioned in passing that when I, uh, when I, when I, when I lived in Harlem when I was a kid, I would take my dog uh, for a walk in that park. And looks of horror came over the students' faces. Uh, people have no idea how much has retrogressed over the years uh, in the black community. And, and how much of what progress has been made has not been made by politicians or by charismatic leaders. Uh, if you, one of the things that, that drives me crazy are people who uh, cite trends over time without deciding where they're going to start the, 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 the time period. For example, as I said, all sorts of wonderful things happened in the 1960s and beyond. Uh, and especially for the minorities and the poor and so forth. Uh, so I, what I did, I said, no, well, you can't, if, you, if you start the data in 1960, we don't know how much, how much uh, was a result of that and how much was a result of other things. That also applies in other things. So for example, one, one simple one, uh, many people say, you know, Ralph Nader wrote this book in 1965 and as, about the automobile safety and so on. As a result, there were laws by the government and, the, and the, the death rates went down after that, which is true in itself. But the death rate went down at a far higher rate prior to his writing the book. And this was the continuation of, of, a, of a trend that went back uh, another 20 or 30 years. Because the market, because car manufacturers, when it came right down to it, had very little interest in getting people killed. Yes, if you kill off your customers, your chances are you won't sell as many cars. The, the big fallacy, at least I take this as in many ways the heart of the book, racial fallacies. Mm -hmm. Now, in this section, in this chapter on racial fallacies, you begin, almost all of this book is addressed to the current moment. Mm. But in racial fallacies, you start by going back about 100 years yes. to lay out the progressive position in the 1910s and 20s in, and for some years afterward. I'm quoting you, in addressing the massive increase in immigration from Eastern and Southern Europe, this begins, this massive increase in immigration begins toward the end of the 19th century and carries on through the 1920s. In addressing the massive increase in immigration, progressives claimed that these new immigrants were inherently, genetically, and therefore permanently inferior. So your argument is that a century or so ago, progressives believed roughly the same about Polish and Italian immigrants that whites in the South had long believed about blacks. Oh, yes. 
All right. Social justice fallacies. I'm going to read a quotation, then I'd like you to take us through this material. With the passing years, more and more evidence undermined the conclusion of the genetic determinists. Jews, who had scored low on the 1917 army mental test, began to score above the national average on various tests as they became a more English-speaking group. A study showed that black orphans, black orphans raised by white families, had significantly higher average IQs than other black children, close quote. So in the century since this, you call them genetic determinants, yeah. which is one way of putting it, they, they were racist. They, yeah. they, or they believed that some races were permanently inferior. Yes, and, and, ha and should be eliminated. And we've learned that's total nonsense. But even more than that, we've learned that IQ is malleable. Is that correct? I'm not sure what you mean by malleable. Well, that, that is to say that this ranking of... Oh, oh, the, 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 ra the, oh, the ranking the changes Jews radically. are stupid in 1917 yeah. because they score badly on tests, but they start... Oh, yeah, on tests written in English. Written tests written in English, okay. And people who, who spoke English did better on those tests. Or that, or that, or that blacks have a certain a fixed IQ ranking, in, yeah. and then you have black orphans raised by white families. In other words, a different cultural... Uh, yeah, uh, but even before that study, that study wasn't done until 1976. Oh, that's a But one. even as of the time of World War One. Uh, uh, the data show, show that black soldiers scored below white, white soldiers. Uh, and this is one of the reason, reasons that soldiers, you, you need people with contrary opinions to, to be able to be free to attack things. Uh, the people who, who believe that, that this, this was genetically determined, they said, that's it, that's the answer, and they moved on. Some other people said, well, let's look at it more closely. And they discovered that uh, black soldiers from New York uh, uh, New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, uh, and uh, one or two other states scored higher than white soldiers from Mississippi, Alabama, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And as I mentioned in the book, uh, people's genes do not change when they cross a state line. Uh, uh, the, the problem is that when, when you have people who are crusading for some idea, whatever the idea is, and they find some data that fits what they believe. That's the end of the story as far as they're concerned, which is fine if there are other people with, co with contrary ideas who will look closer for something that goes the other way. And then get listened to. Yes, yes. By the way, you describe in the book the Flynn effect yes. discovered by your, your friend, the late James Flynn. Can you yes. describe that? That's fascinating. Well, the, the, the idea of the genetic determinist is that you had to... Uh, rid the country of these, these uh, inferior races because otherwise the national IQ would go, would go down over time because the poorer people had more children than the, than the richer people. Uh, and so that, that, that went on. For, for, here again, uh, the IQ data there that, that, that the genetic determinists were relying on looked like it supported what they said. But Jim Flynn decided that, uh, well, first of all, you have to understand what, what an IQ score, how, how an IQ score is arrived at. Whatever number of uh, questions answered correctly is the average at a given time, uh, is given the num number 100. Because uh, when you do these tests, especially with children, uh, if a six-year-old child uh, scores uh, the same as a 12-year-old child, uh, uh, that means the 60-year-old child is either much brighter than usual or the 12-year-old child is a lot less than usual. And so you compare the, the, all the 60-year-old children 
And whatever the six-year-old children, how many questions they answer correctly, that becomes 100, for, and then similarly for all the other ages. Right, so you right. can do that. And in adulthood, at some point, you simply say adult and non-adult. Right, all right. right. Now, that sounds very, very, very innocent in itself, but what, what happens when people start answering more questions correctly than before? The next generation answers more questions. Now the, now the number of questions answered by the second generation becomes 100. And so over time, as more and more people, black, white, and whatever, are answering more and more questions correctly, uh, they, 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 the, the tests are, re, are renormed. So, so having an IQ of 100 uh, in 1925 is not the same thing as having an IQ of 100 in 1935 or 1950. And this is exactly what was going on. Yes. People of all different kinds were, were yes. and, getting and, smarter, to put yeah. it crudely. Is but, that fair? But, one, but once Jim Flynn decided to go back to the raw data, not just take, 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 the, take the IQs. How many, how many questions was this? And he, just, he discovers that the number of questions being answered correctly was increasing by large amounts, roughly one statistical uh, uh, deviation, deviation right. uh, uh, from, from one generation to the next. Which is big. Yes. And so, and so uh, the, the, number, the number of uh, questions that the blacks were answering, uh, say around 2,000, uh, uh, and having an IQ of 85, would have been an IQ of 104 back in 1947. And so all this information was, was being uh, ignored because they, people took the IQ test as if that was a fixed, num fixed number of, of uh, questions that I answered correctly. And so, so you take the lid off that one, the Flynn, the Flynn effect. Shows that the opposite was happening, that instead of the, the national IQ going down, it was going up. It was going up. And so we have this fascinating discovery that somehow or other the conditions of modern life that requires more abstract thinking, yes. somehow it's bringing in... Um, uh, the whole it, group is rising. The whole group is rising. All right. All right. From the progressive position a century ago to the progressive position today, racial assertions have ranged from the genetic determinism that we just discussed, which proclaimed that race is everything as an explanation of group differences, to the opposite view that racism yes. is the primary explanation of group differences. Yes. How did this happen? Oh, it happened because a lot of people uh, arrived at that at, at same con conclusion, and they had IQs, high IQs and PhDs, and that was the end of the story as far, uh, as, far as many people were concerned. All right. I mean, a, a high IQ and low information is a very dangerous combination. I, I have, sorry, but you once told me, I'm talking to a Harvard man, of course, I'm very conscious of this, and you once told me, Peter, the main advantage of earning a Harvard degree is that you never again in all your life have to be intimidated by anyone who has a Harvard degree. <laughs> all right. Listen, Tom, for the most, as I read this book, for the most part, it's objective, it's, it's objective throughout, it's calm, it's analytical, but when you take on this modern progressive position that racism accounts for anything, there are passages mm. in which you're angry. I felt that there are passages yes. in which there's emotion that is very close to this. So let me just read a little bit to okay. you. Median black family income has been lower than median white family income for generations. But 
the median per capita income of Asian groups is more than 15,000 a year higher than the media per capita income of white Americans. Is this the white supremacy we're so often warned about? For more than a quarter of a century, in no year has the annual poverty rate of black married couple families, married couple families, been as high as 10%. And in no year has the poverty rate of Americans as a whole been as low as 10%. If black poverty is caused by systemic racism, do racists make an exception for blacks who are married? I guess you're allowed to be angry. Yes. Well, yes. So, do you have the feeling when you're addressing this notion that racism accounts for everything, do you have the feeling that, there's, that, that, the, that the arguments are subtle, it's persuasive, you can forgive someone for buying that argument? Mm. Or do you have the feeling that it's willful? That the well, case is so clearly mistaken that there's a willfulness about it? No, I, I, don't, I, don't, I think that, that, that people don't look for, for certain evidence and therefore they don't find it. And so from, from the, on the basis of what they know at, at a given time, this may be very plausible. The problem is that you don't, what you really need are other people with different orientation who are, who, who, are, who are skeptical and who will then look for things and find things that, that are very different from that. Uh, one, one, of the, one of the things that, uh, I, that, I, that I found uh, interesting was the, the, the uh, fact that there are various counties in the United States uh, which are among the poorest counties in the, in, in the country. And six of those counties have a, have a, a a population that ranges from 90% white to 100% white. Appalachian counties. Kentucky, yes. Kentucky, is yes. Kentucky yeah. and Ohio, as I recall. Yeah, and, 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 but mainly it's the, it's, it's, it's the hillbilly communities. Right. And of course, there's that great book that was written, The Hillbilly Elegy. It was on the bestseller list for more than a year consecutively. J.D. Vance, now Senator Vance. Yes, and, and, and these are people who have faced zero racism. They are white, after and they are white, and, and and zero racism, and also there, back in the 30s when they did IQ studies, uh, their IQs were not only at the same level as those of blacks, uh, they had the same pattern, namely that the, that the young that the young people, whether they were black or hillbilly, uh, would have an IQ very close to the national average uh, at age six. But by the time they were teenagers, it just kept going down and down and down because it's relative to the other, other people in the, of that age group. And they simply were not were falling behind. Uh, so it was clearly not biological. It was, it was social. But uh, despite that, the, these, these hillbilly counties had uh, income, incomes that were not only lower than the national average, they were lower than the average of, of black incomes for a, a period of, of half a century, it may have been longer than that because I only went through half a century. But in every study that was done over that half century, they scored lower, their family incomes were lower than the family incomes of blacks. So obviously there must be other things that cause people to be poor other than racism. All right. People in low-income American hillbilly counties already face zero racism because they're virtually all white. Yes. 
yet they have lower incomes than blacks, just as you were saying. In other words, some behavior patterns yeah. seem to pay off. Now, this book is dedicated to fallacies, to showing errors in premises and yeah. errors in analysis. Mm -hmm. It's not dedicated to an alternative explanation. Nevertheless, you've got this argument lurking in here that it's the way people live, it's the way th cultural yes. patterns. So what are the patterns that pay off? Well, what, oh my heavens, that, that, that's a much, much larger book than this. Well, you've got time on your hands. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in terms of public policy, what does not pay off is having charismatic leaders uh, depending upon government to do things. Because if you look, what, what has happened to blacks before and after, there was a massive uh, government effort on their behalf. Uh, the poverty rate among blacks, if you start in 1940 instead of 1960, because 1960 is the magic number for people who are saying the government, you see, did all these wonderful things and blacks advanced because of it. Uh, in 1940, uh, uh, the black poverty rate was 87 percent. Uh, by 1960, it was down, it down to 47 percent. That's dramatic. Uh, from 1960 to 1970, it went down to 30 percent. And in 1970, affirmative action was now in place. It went down to 29 percent. So in the, in the 20 years prior to 1960s, the black poverty rate went down by 40 points. And in the 20... And in the 20 years after 1960, it went down by 18 points. Uh, but again, you have the same thing you had with what was the Ralph Nader effect, you see. You started in 1960, you missed this. So, you miss all of that. So, so you've got in this book, this is a point you make again and again in the section on racial fallacies, that I started thinking of it, I don't think you use these terms, but this is not an original thought with me, I started thinking of it as a, as a hidden century of black progress. Yes. From emancipation with the end of the Civil War mm -hmm. through to 1965, let's say, mm -hmm. the Civil Rights Act of 1964, 65, yeah. through the early, through the mid-60s, you've got a century, and you argue black educational attainment rises. Yes. Black poverty rate drops dramatically. Yeah. And these are people who started with no property, overwhelmingly illiterate. This is from the moment, yes. the, the sort of the, the year zero in yeah. 1865 for African Americans. And they climb, and, and, and f the other point that you make at a number of places is that the black family mm -hmm. is overwhelmingly intact. Yes. And right and up to 1960, yes. most black, uh, go yeah. ahead, explain yeah, that. But, and I'll, 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 not only, not only do people take credit for things that were not, 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 not there doing, uh, they overlook the negative things that came in after the 1960s as a result of, of policy. In 1940, 17% uh, of black children were raised in, in, in single-parent homes. 17%. At the end, I, f I forget the exact date in the, in the 20th century, but, it, but uh, after the, these wonderful uh, reforms were put in, that quadrupled to 68% of black children were being raised in single-parent homes. 
Now, there's a whole literature on all the bad things that happen to kids who are raised by single parents, whether they are black or white, American or British. The studies show the same things. One study said that uh, fatherlessness has a bigger effect than even race and poverty. And I and I and certainly I, th I think back into my own life, I was re I realized how fortunate I was because uh, e even though my biological father died before I was born, uh, I, I would and I was uh, adopted. I was adopted into a family where I was the uh, only child uh, in a family of four adults, uh, and and these were not people who were out having an active social life. Someplace the life was there in the home. They gave you their time. Yes, yes, and I remember years later when I became a parent, and like other new parents, I wanted to know when is the kid supposed to do this, when he's supposed to do that. When they walk. And I said, I said, uh, how old was I when I started to walk? And uh, this lone surviving member of the family that raised me said, Tommy, nobody knows when you could walk. Somebody was always carrying you. <laughs> you know, but so you had four adults doting on yes, you. Yes, 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 and that—that's—that's that's what, and and then part of the part of the the rise of blacks before was because of things that were done by blacks. Uh, I, I thought example that I think of a lot, of a lot was a kid who grew up in Harlem at the same time I I did. We were in the same uh, school, he lived two blocks from me. Uh, and uh, we met many years later by accident on a street in San Francisco, and we talked about the old times. And one of the things he mentioned to me, because he had gone on, he, he was making more money than I was, uh, and, and uh, he would become wealthy, and he lived overseas with servants, and he came back and moved out to the wine country and all that stuff. Uh, but one of the things that struck me, he said that he could remember times when he was growing up, when his father would sit at the dinner table watching the children eat, and not eat anything himself. Now, it, it's not, it's not, that's what. And now the father isn't even there. Yes, that's right, that's right. Uh, so that, those kinds of things are what do it. Right. Social justice fallacies. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 was a major factor in ending the denial of basic constitutional rights to blacks in the South. But there is no point trying to make that the main source of the black rise out of poverty, nor can the left act as if the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was solely their work. A higher percentage of Republicans than Democrats voted for the act, close quote. So this is, this, you're saying something here which is, really, it is, it's, sh it's shocking, it's heretical. Yeah. You're saying, well, you're saying the Civil Rights Act ensured equality before the law. That was overdue, it was necessary, it was just. That's an accomplishment in American history. Yes. But at about the same time, we get the creation of a vast expansion of the welfare state, and it does people harm. Yes. It harms the African-American family. It leads to fatherless. Have, have I got your yeah, argument right? Yeah. yeah. And you want to stand by that. Yeah, the other, and the other thing, too, it, the Civil Rights Act was not what got blacks into professional occupations. Uh, in the decade prior to, the, to 1964, the number of blacks in professional occupations doubled. So this is, not, this is not the result of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. All right. 
Tom, a few uh, closing questions here. First of all, may I read to you, this is a note to readers from the New York Times in 2020. All right. The nationwide protests over racism and police violence have prompted a renewed focus on a long-standing debate whether to capitalize the term black. We here at the New York Times have talked to more than 100 staff members. <laughs> the feedback has been thoughtful and nuanced, thoughtful and nuanced, mind you, and we've, just started to, we've decided to start using uppercase black to describe people and cultures of African origin. Close quote. The New York Times capitalizes black, but you don't. Tom Sowell, how dare you engage in this act of defiance? <laughs> oh, it, it is amazing the things that people can, uh, can, can focus on. Uh, it, 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 may, it may seem to be a big issue to the New York Times. I suspect that the people who are being uh, uh, murdered in these uh, big cities uh, like New York and Chicago may have a somewhat different view of the importance of, of, of what is capitalized and not capitalized. Tom, let me read a few single sentences from social justice fallacies. Mm. I'll read a sentence, you tell us what you meant. Stupid people can create problems, but it often takes brilliant people to create a real catastrophe. That is so, my gosh. Think of the catastrophes of the 20th century. You mentioned the genetic determinant. They drew the conclusion from their reasoning that uh, it, you had to, to put an end to certain races because they, they, were, they had what they called eugenics, but what was later called genocide. And so that idea originated with the progressives. Uh, and there was a progressive who wrote a book with that theme, uh, which was translated into German, and Hitler called it his Bible. And so this, this Holocaust- You draw a line from the progressive eugenicists to Adolf Hitler. Now, he drew the line. He drew the line and wrote a letter, a fan mail letter to, to the author of that book, and saying that that book was his Bible. And we see what that led to. Uh, during, during the 1920s, in reaction to World War I, which was so, so bad, the idea arose among the intellectual elites that the way to prevent war was to stop, was to stop arming. You see, you saw disarmament was the way to avoid a war. Uh, no evidence made the slightest uh, impression on them, uh, and they and they blundered the, the West into into a war that probably would never have happened because the, the, the totalitarian dictatorships that started that war were well aware that the United States, Britain, and France had an industrial capacity greater than theirs, and you don't you wouldn't ordinarily attack countries that have greater industrial capacity than yours, unless you thought that they were, they, they, they were gutless and, weren't, and were foolish enough not, not to remain armed. And for three years of that war, the Axis powers won every single battle. The Western democracies lost in Europe and Asia, wherever they fought. Uh, in 1942, uh, Winston Churchill said, made a speech and he said, uh, we have a new experience. We have victory. And when they won that victory in El Alamein in Northern Africa, that was the first battle won by the Western democracies in a war that was already three years old. And from that point on, especially when the United States came in and the American productive capacity was mobilized, then, they, then, then it turned around. Uh, today, 
people who are trying to say, say we need to disarm in order to have, uh, you know, peace, don't understand in a nuclear age, you're not going to get three years to figure out what's going on. You're either going to be uh, uh, ready on the first day of that war or you're going to lose it. In politics, the goal is not truth, but votes. Absolutely. And why does that matter? Oh, it, 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 it matters because uh, if you can get people to believe that their problems are all due to racists, uh, you will get their votes. But if you say, but if you look at the, a lot of data on different things, you discover well, that's not the case. This, it's very doubtful if all the racists in the country today have half the negative effect on blacks as the teachers' unions have. Because the teachers' unions keep the schools lousy uh, in areas where, uh, the, where, where the people who send their kids to school do not have the option to send them to a private school if the schools are bad. You make the point that in Harlem, there are charter schools that rent space in public schools. And there are tests, well, go ahead. Do you know what I'm referring to? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, in fact, there, there's a school, uh, I, I thought the way to figure out the, the uh, difference between the public school and, and the charter school, the regular public schools and the charter schools, is to compare them in the same build, when, when both schools are located in the same buildings. So you have comparability, it's the same group. When you, same when you, neighborhood, same building. Yeah, so everything. Uh, uh, and, and when you do that, uh, what I found was that uh, the, the uh, charter school kids in these low-income black neighborhoods pass the math test at a rate more than six times as high as that of the public school located in the very same building. And the main difference between the charter school and the public school is the, the public school is run by the teachers' unions. The charter schools do not have to have unions at all, at all in most cases. One of the most extreme uh, examples was a school that I went to when I was in Harlem. Uh, and in that particular school, only 7% of the regular public school kids passed the math test. Uh, in the uh, charter school, 100% passed it. Uh, uh, they, 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 they have different levels. Proficient means you've passed, and there's a level above that when you've done more than what is necessary for that. Uh, in that particular school, only 2% of the, of the charter school kids scored as low as proficient. The other 98% were in the top uh, bracket above proficient. Last, last question here. Uh, last quotation, Tom. Mm. One of many things that no individual, no institution, and no society has any control over is the past. Yes. Why does that matter? Because when we talk, we talk about uh, groups and we, we talk about their uh, environment, we usually mean their tangible current surroundings. But of course, all the groups have had different pasts. Uh, when, the, when the Irish, the Jews, and the Italian uh, immigrants were, were, were coming to America, uh, it was common for Irish, for, for Italian and Jewish neighborhoods on New York's Lower East Side to be represented by Irish politicians. And, that, and, and why is that? Because if you look at what happened before they ever got to America, you can see that the Irish had reasons to organize in a political kind of way. The Jews and the Italians did not. Their circumstances, it wouldn't have made any difference. 
And now when they get to New York, they, were, they may be living in the same neighborhoods and so forth, and the tangible surroundings are the same, but the whole past of the three groups is very different. And even when it's, the Italians and the Jews rise to prosperity, it's in different industries. It's in different occupations. And the past means that we should never expect groups to end up evenly distributed oh, across the past. But, but even such a thing as age, people don't realize some American ethnic groups are a decade older than others, and some are more than two decades older than others. So the Japanese, the difference between blacks and white is not the largest difference in the country. The Japanese Americans have, are, are higher than Mexican Americans by an even larger amounts. Japanese Americans have a median age of 52. Uh, Mexican Americans have somewhere in the 20s. 52-year-old people make more money than 20-year-old people. Tom, would you close our discussion by reading a passage from Social Justice Fallacies? Well, if I still still agree with it. Do we want the mixture of students who are going to be trained to do advanced medical research to be representative of the demographic makeup of the population as a whole? Or do we want students with the highest probability of finding cures for cancer and Alzheimer's? Do you want airline pilots chosen for demographic representation of various groups? Or would you prefer to fly with pilots who are chosen for their mastery of all the complex things that increase your chances of arriving safely at your destination. Consequences matter, or should matter, more than some attractive or fashionable theory. More fundamentally, do we want a society in which some babies are born into the world as heirs of prepackaged grievances against other babies born the same day, blighting both their lives, or do we want to at least leave them the option to work things out better in their lives than we have in ours? Thomas Sowell, author of some 40 books, including Social Justice Fallacies. Thank you. Thank you. For Uncommon Knowledge, the Hoover Institution and Fox Nation, I'm Peter Robinson.